Now, throughout our Christmas series, we've been saying that Christmas in our culture can feel like one of those celebrations that's just reserved for people who have it all together, who have that uh, picture-perfect scene of uh, what we imagine a, an idyllic Christmas might be. But if you don't fit the bill, if that isn't uh, the picture of your life, then you can feel like an outsider to the Christmas story. But the biblical picture is far more realistic than that. And so Matthew opens his account, giving us a genealogy of Jesus that unusually includes the names of five women. And we've been looking at their lives because Matthew wants us to see them and to see their connection to Christmas. There are five hurting women who illustrate how God's love overcomes people's rejection. Today we're looking at Ruth and God's love for a young widow. Now, Ruth had a hard life, and we will get into what made her life so hard, but one of the things that made Ruth's life difficult was uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, the, uh, some of the, the bitterness that she, she dealt with. And when I think of Naomi, I'm, I, 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 I think uh, as a modern-day picture uh, a woman that Michael Paternetti introduces as uh, uh, a woman that he heard of in his father's uh, ancestral town. Paternetti is a best-selling author, but when he visited his father's hometown, he was talking with neighbors and getting to know the villagers, and he was told the story of an elderly woman who had incredible devotion. Every day she would travel uh, to uh, the local cemetery. And for her, that was an incredible trek. Uh, she uh, walked with great difficulty, leaning on a cane, and the cemetery was at the top of the hill. So it involved this uh, Herculean effort for her to make her way to the top of the hill each day. And uh, she was struggling so much to walk that it would actually take several hours out of her day every day um, uh, to make the trip. And yet she continued to do it, rain or shine. She might have made a good parking lot attendant, come to think of it. Uh, but she just had that devotion. And Paternetti wanted to know, like, what's her story? Where does that come from? How is it that she has uh, that, that kind of devotion? Was there uh, a child that she had lost? Was, was that what was driving her? Was there uh, a beloved husband who had, uh, had, had died? Was she going to see uh, his grave? And as, she, uh, as he asked questions and tried to learn more, he's, the, uh, uh, the, the neighbor that he was speaking to said, no, it wasn't any of those things. It was Astio. Astio that had driven her to make these daily trips, the Italian word for bitterness. In fact, the thing that had been driving her each day to that cemetery was that one of her, her rival enemy had, uh, had died and was buried there, and she made the trip every day to pour out her, her bitterness upon this person and to spit on her grave. And she is just this picture of someone for whom Bitterness has been allowed to seep into the way that they think, the way they see their life, and it consumes and takes over. Now, uh, 
Ruth knew just such a woman. And it was part of what made her life difficult. But Matthew includes Ruth's story in the genealogy. He points us to her story by including her name there and, and wants us to see how she is connected to Christmas. And so I want us to see how she is connected to Christmas. How could someone's life like that be uh, connected to Christmas? And so to do that, I want to ask you to turn in your Bible to Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 18 together. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can look at the, there's a a black Bible in the rack uh, under the seat in front of you. And uh, if you just have that open, we'll be walking through it this morning. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of her daughters she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they, lift up, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet set sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of God. Now, verse 1 sets the scene for us, and it's important to us to understand what's happening in the story. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled was one of the lowest points in Israel's history. It was a time that was marked by this constant cycle 
of the people turning their backs on God, running away from him, finding themselves in great calamity and often disaster as a result, and then finding themselves at their lowest point, calling out to God, asking for his mercy, and God sending a deliverer and bringing relief to them. That's the cycle that gets repeated over and over in this time of the judges. And the phrase that gets repeated in the book of Judges uh, is, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we are in this period where everyone does what is right in his own eyes, and so great trouble comes upon God's people as a result of that. Now, when we're told that there's a famine in the land, because of that history and because of that background, we know what to expect. When there's a famine in the land, that's the the disaster that's come upon God's people because they've turned their backs on him. We know, oh, this is the point when they cry out to the Lord. They, They ask for his mercy and he sends deliverance. Only we've read the chapter and nobody's crying out to the Lord. Nobody's praying to him. Nobody's repenting of their sins. Instead, we're told that a man named Elimelech takes his wife and two sons and heads to Moab. What, what is this child of God leaving the promised land? What, what, what is he doing in turning his back on the promises to Abraham and the land that they have been promised? Why isn't he seeking the Lord instead? Now, you'll notice that names are mentioned very specifically in this chapter. And in fact, uh, one of the characters, and we'll get into this, wants her name changed at a certain point. So the, the meanings of the name seem to be significant. They aren't always in Scripture. Here, it, it appears that they are. Elimelech means, my God is king. That sounds like a pretty good name for an Israelite, only this particular person named my God is king isn't acting like his God is king. When things go wrong, instead of calling out to his God as king, he decides to go over into the land of another king. He decides to to leave altogether and uh, head in a different direction. Now, while he's married a woman whose name Naomi means pleasant, they have two sons, and the sons' names uh, translate as sickly and failing. And like, how... Desperate do you have to feel as a mother or father to name your child sickly? Like, how, how terrible the situation must be? How, how struggling and, and, uh, are you to name your second son failing? Like, you can just picture, like, these are names that are going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. I, how, do you li- how do you like being on the on the school playroom, you know, playground, you're at recess and they're, they're picking teams and they're calling, who's, who's, who's going to choose sickly for their team? Uh, or I, I kind of picture math class and the, the teacher is saying, okay, we're going to take up the homework. Uh, uh, number one, does anybody have the answer to that? How about you failing? No idea? Yeah, I, I kind of expected that. Like, you, you, you have set the, the, the course for these children's lives, and it gives you a picture of, of at least where this family was at. Or maybe it's, maybe it's the case that, that these were actually popular names in the day. Maybe things were so bad at this period in the time of the judges that, that sickly and failing just sounded like regular popular names. 
Either way, we are to picture a time and a period in history where God's people are under the judgment of God for their sin. They have turned their backs on him, and uh, we, are, we are witnessing that. Now, uh, we, are, uh, uh, we are experiencing this, and we are trying to, to come to terms with this. And uh, as we do, we have uh, a picture in verse 3 when it says, Elimelech died. Now, we've, we knew that this was a difficult period in time. We knew that there was a famine in the land. And we knew that Elimelech wasn't doing any of the things that he should have been doing. He was, in fact, running away from God and running away from God's promises. Now, for sometimes, in a person like this, maybe a funeral call will be a, a wake-up to the rest of the family. Maybe we'll see coming out of this that the people turn and... Uh, the, 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 the sons will respond in some way that, to, to recognize the error of their ways. But instead, sickly and failing, double down on their father's sin. They take Moabite wives, and they seem to have forgotten the promised land altogether. They are settling down, it says, and they remained there. A woman named Orpah marries sickly, and Ruth marries failing. After 10 years in Moab and no change of heart, we're not surprised to hear then that those two men die also. And these are devastating circumstances. So far, we've, we, we, we've kind of seen those circumstances that have hit this family. And in, in verse 5, uh, the mother who was introduced as Naomi in verses 2 and 3, it just, the narrator just calls her the woman. It's like she has lost her identity. She has, she has just become some nondescript person, and she certainly doesn't want to be known as pleasant. And so she's just called the woman. Now, the story is told here with a focus on Naomi, on this mother who has lost a husband and lost two sons, and it is tragic. But Matthew in his gospel doesn't include Naomi's name, only Ruth's. And so he wants us to go back and to see this story from Ruth's perspective. And so let's try to see this through the perspective of this Moabite wife who is married into the family. Uh, she probably doesn't know much about the promise to Abraham. She wouldn't have known necessarily of how precious the land was that he had been promised. And he, she probably didn't know the, some of the, the commands uh, of, of Israel's God that they were uh, rebelling against and ignoring. All she probably knows is she's experienced one tragedy after another since marrying into this family. Her father-in-law's death wasn't just sad. It made them vulnerable as a family. Uh, then when her two, her, both her husband and her uh, brother-in-law die, that would, again, not just be a tragic circumstance, it would be economically ruinous for them. And it, it would, again, make them very vulnerable as a family. Then, after 10 years, the fact that neither she nor her sister-in-law had been able to have children at this time in history would, couldn't have felt like a coincidence. They are feeling 
the impact of all of these. And she is having to come to terms with the tragedies that they've experienced. And it's a reminder of how people's bad choices it can make life hard for, uh, for the people around them. That it is not just our own, uh, our, uh, we are never just dealing with our own problems and our own sins and, and the consequences of them. But when people leave God out of the picture, either as a society or as an individual, it has implications for the people around them. Maybe that's what's made the approach of Christmas difficult for some of you. Maybe you are living with the fallout from the sinful decisions of people around you or from a, a, a culture set against God. I, I read this week of a New York couple who they went through a, a difficult and painful divorce. But in, this, in the process of this divorce, they became so entrenched in their uh, hatred and fight with each other, neither of them were, uh, were willing to leave the home, to give up either to sell it or to, uh, to uh, uh, allow the other to continue to live there. And so after a lengthy court uh, dispute, the final ruling was that the, they would be able, allowed to stay, but that a wall would have to be built in the home to separate the uh, the, the, the two of them in, in, and enable them to continue to live there. To, with that wall having, been partition, having partitioned off this apartment, the husband, in order to get to the dining room, had to go through the balcony and in through a window. The wife, for her part, was able to access her uh, living space more easily, but uh, not to, in order to even things up, the husband made her life miserable banging on the walls, yelling, and guess what? He got to control the thermostat. Winter comes, he's turning off the heat, and just this constant back and forth. But I read that article, and I thought, yeah, but what about the impact on the kids? What about the impact on the neighbors? See, other people's wrong, foolish, and sinful decisions have impact on the people around them. There's collateral damage. People uh, get caught in the crossfire. And that's what's happening with Ruth here. She has married into a family that is just walking into the judgment of God because of their choices. And she's kind of taken, taken all this in and, and blindsided by um, all, of, all that she's been hit with. Now, despite all that's happened, there's finally some good news in verse 6. Naomi has heard that the Lord visited his people and had given them food. Now that also, if we know the, if we know the, the cycle of the period of the judges, that should surprise us. Because there's been no mention of prayer, no mention of repentance, no mention of the people calling out to the Lord, and yet God has visited them. He has shown mercy on them. He has provided for them and brought an end to the famine. Every indication was that people had just carried on without God and God was gracious to them anyway. And we expect at this point that Naomi would be moved by that. That she would recognize this is the grace of God and respond. That she would recognize that God has, has done this even though we were, we were running away from him. Even though we had our backs turned against him. We think that this will 
turn her heart, and yet there's no indication that it does. Then, in verse 7, when Naomi sets out to return to Israel, Orpah and Ruth are at her side. She makes this moving speech to them in verses 8 and 9, and she urges them to turn around. And then they burst into tears, and in verse 10 they say, No, we'll return with you to your people. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, How did sickly and failing manage to land such incredible wives? Like, how did this woman, who will later call herself bitter, how, will she ma- how did she manage to get such incredible daughters-in-law? And I'm ex- reading this expecting she is going to be moved and recognize this is the hand of God. This is God's grace to me. He is at work even though I have run from him, even though I have turned my, my back on him. We are expecting her to recognize the grace of God. And yet there's no indication that she does. We're only met with her bitterness. In verse 13, she says, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. God's just got it out for me. When When you use the phrase, the hand of the Lord, it's usually, it's almost always used to describe God coming to the aid of Israel against their enemies. The hand of the Lord went out against them. Naomi uses that phrase to say, the hand of the Lord's against me. He's treating me like his enemy. And all that she can see is is what's wrong in her life. Later in verse 20, she wants her name changed to bitter, Mara. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now we were hoping, I was hoping, that Naomi could have showed her daughters-in-law, could have shown these young Moabite women what it is like when a child of God faces hardship and difficulty. And all she shows them is bitterness. Instead of hope or peace or joy, just that anger in her. And it's painful to listen to, painful to see. She paints such a bleak picture of life back in the promised land that she finally manages to convince Orpah to return to her homeland. But Ruth, even then, still clings to her. Naomi's bitterness, it's like it's making life seem hopeless to everyone around her. Hear what she says to this saint of a young widow named Ruth in verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Can you imagine coming to the point in your life where you're talking with your neighbor and you're saying, you know what? Jesus has absolutely nothing for you. You might as well just stick with your own religion. That's, that's Naomi here. She, she has so been buried in her her pain and her bitterness that she can't see hope, she can't express hope, she can't communicate hope. And yet, that's often what bitterness does. Ron McManus said, bitterness is like swallowing poison and waiting for your enemy to die. It, 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 It just creates in you this slow, painful death, like 
the, the, the woman who made her trip to the cemetery each day in Michael Paternini's father's hometown. It just eats away at you. And when the bitterness is directed at God, like Naomi's was, makes it all the more dangerous. Now, I want to take a show of hands to see how many of you are cat lovers. I don't, I don't know why you would be. I know at least one person who's, I know one cat lover. Um, I don't know why anyone would be a cat lover, but that, that's okay. There's no secret, at least, that, that dogs are more friendly. They're more happy. They're just more playful. They're just better pets, right? But I, I, I learned this week that there is actual scientific backing as to why that is. Do you know why, you know why cats are so sour? So just, you know, they're just not pleasant creatures, right? You know why that is? Well, I'm not sure the exact connection, but what I learned this week in Scientific American was that cats can't taste sweetness. Their, their tongue can, can pick up on sour, bitter, salty, meaty, like all these other things. Sweetness, it just doesn't register. You know, give them something sweet, it, it doesn't doesn't phase them, doesn't, re- there's nothing there. It's like they've got, they've got COVID tongue, but just for sweetness. It just, it just eludes them. And I think that's what makes them so grumpy. You know, this is why they're just not happy like dogs are, right? And I think that that's what bitterness does in our lives. It's like we can't taste the sweetness of life anymore. Can't see it, can't feel it, can't, Enjoy it, can't enter into it. Now, maybe there's, as you're listening to this, you'd say, I think there's a bit of Naomi in me that I need to deal with. I, I, I kind of need to, to, to recognize, you know, there, I, I just, gratefulness is not coming easily to me these days. I just seem to kind of get into this pattern of anger and bitterness in my life. But again, this story Matthew has sent us back there not to look at Naomi, but to look at Ruth. And so again, we need to consider from her perspective. Imagine what it would have been like for her. She's, she's living with Naomi. She's hearing this, right? Imagine how it would have been to hear Naomi talking about the Lord as her enemy. Imagine what it would have been like for her to talk as if life is just hopeless and bitter and and, and just, there's nothing, nothing good, nothing to be grateful for. Imagine coming to the point where you think, I want to put my trust in this God of Israel. I want to follow him. And then being told by your mother-in-law, you might as well just head back to Moab and go with their gods. There's nothing for you here. That, that's where Ruth is at. That's, that's what she is experiencing here. And maybe, maybe there's someone here and you would say, someone's bitterness has done that in my life too. Maybe it's a parent's bitterness or a spouse's bitterness or maybe you were, you, you were first exposed to the Christian message by someone that was just so bitter that it's hard for you to get through that to hear the message. Or maybe it's your own bitterness has clouded your hearing of the good news about Jesus. Ruth was in exactly that position. But she shows us that there's a future in a life that trusts God and loves as he does. 
that, that we don't need to be blocked and walled in by a person's bitterness. People's bad choices may have made life difficult for you, and their attitude may make it feel like sometimes there's no hope for you, but there's a future in a life that trusts God and loves as he does. And by the time we get to verse 16, Ruth has faced many adjustments. She's faced the adjustment of marrying into a Jewish family. She's heard of how hard life was in Bethlehem and how uh, difficult the famine had made everything. She's experienced the tragedy of her husband's and her brother-in-law's death. And now at this point, she has listened to not one, not two, but three speeches from Naomi urging her to turn around and go back to Moab. Finally, her sister-in-law has decided to go there, and if she's going to continue on, she'll do so alone with her mother-in-law. With all of that in the background, she says defiantly in verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. And later in the same verse, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She leaves behind everything familiar at the most vulnerable time in her life. She, she will turn and walk in a direction to a people that she does not know, a land that she has not been to. Those people are li liable to view her with prejudice. She is likely to face difficulty as she has no economic prospects, no, uh, no way and means of protection. And yet she commits herself to Naomi's God and to Naomi's people. Now, she can't be doing that because she thinks this is going to be the easiest path. She is not choosing comfort here, but she has seen in the God of Israel, this is, this is, this, this is a path of truth. I have found the true and the living God. She recognizes that she has found one who has the power to, to visit his people with grace and mercy. And she looks to him, not because it's comfortable, not because it's easy, but because in him she believes there is truth, there is reality, and there is blessing. Notice that she understands that a commitment to God also involves a commitment to God's people. I think so often we miss that today. People will talk about their deep commitment to God, and yet they're kind of... Take it or leave it with the church. There doesn't seem to be a, a correlation between the two. Uh, they they want to get close to the Lord, but they don't show great devotion to God's family. Ruth realizes, no, you, you can't have one without the other. You can't be totally committed to Jesus without being totally committed to what Jesus is totally committed to. And he's totally committed to his people. Ruth's faith is expressed by a commitment to love the way God loves. Despite all we've said about how bitter and, and, and hopeless Naomi has been, Ruth vows, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Like, those are incredible words. They're often read at, at weddings today. No, this, is, this is a perfect expression of, of commitment and love, but it, 
It's not really in a, in a, in a wedding context because in this context, you are saying, she is saying these words to someone who is bitter. You know, right up front, they're just difficult. They have a painful outlook on life. You've seen the worst of them. Usually the bride and groom, when they're saying those words, they're not, they haven't quite seen that side of, of the other person yet. And so she has made a commitment to a woman who calls herself bitter. And in doing so, she's committing herself to a life of grace. It's a life of grace because she knows she, she doesn't deserve to, to receive anything from this, this, this God that she will now commit herself to following. And she can't expect to uh, receive anything from those people. If she does, it'll be grace. But similarly, Naomi, frankly, doesn't receive, deserve to receive anything from her either. Anything that she gives to her mother-in-law at this point is over and above uh, just an act of grace. And so here, Ruth is committing herself to be a grace getter and a grace giver. And that is just the kind of life that God loves to bless. As someone who is looking to God in faith to receive from him and is looking to others who don't deserve their grace and freely and graciously giving it. The rest of the book of Ruth shows the faithfulness of God in blessing her. She goes to a people from whom you would expect for her to receive discrimination and she experiences kindness. She receives generosity instead of cruelty. She finds a husband. She has a son. And she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. But the moral of the story isn't that God gives husbands and babies to everyone who is faithful enough. That's not the message here. But it is a message that God is pleased to bless people who look to him for his grace and who seek to express that grace to those around them. Hebrews 11.6 says, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that God rewards those who seek him? Or are, are you someone who kind of wants to put in a, an appearance with God once in a while, but you're really looking for your rewards in the world? Are you seeking God? Or are you just kind of hanging out? Is it about attendance or is it about a, a, a heart that pursues him? Now, Matthew highlights Ruth in Jesus' genealogy to say Christmas is for people like her. And there's incredible hope in that. Because your life may feel more like loss than gain. You might feel like collateral damage to someone's bad choices. You might feel walled in by someone's bitter hopelessness. And nobody's asking to make a Hallmark Christmas movie of your life. But let Ruth point you to the place of true Christmas hope. It's available for childless widows and friendless foreigners. It's available for outsiders and newcomers. 
It's available for all who would come in faith, all who would trust. And it comes as you trust God beyond your circumstances and as you love the way that he loves. Now, that probably looks different. There, the, the issues and the obstacles to seeing Christmas through Ruth's eyes are probably different for each one of us. Maybe for you it means recognizing that some of what makes life hard is that we live in a world that's turned its back on God. Adam and Eve in the garden chose not to experience a life that was just good. They reached out for that which was evil. And they chose a world of good and evil. And we have been compounding that problem and things have only gotten worse ever since. People shake their fist at God or ask, what have I done? When we should be looking at our world and saying, what have we done? And so maybe recognizing that is, is part of, of seeing Christmas through Ruth's eyes. Maybe for you, letting Ruth point you to Christmas might mean refusing to give in to the bitterness. Maybe it's a voice of bitterness in someone close to you that just beginning to darken the way that you see the life around you. Or maybe that voice of bitterness is your own. Maybe it's keeping you from seeing God's grace at work, keeping you from seeing the, the beauty of the true Christmas and the celebration of Christ. Trust that God is good and thank him for his mercies. Maybe for some of you, seeing how Ruth points us to Christmas is about commitment. Maybe it's about realizing that you've kind of been hovering around Jesus, but you've never really made a commitment to him. Maybe, maybe this is the year where you decide your people shall be my people. You decide to make some commitments uh, in your faith towards God. Maybe you say, I, I'm finally going to make that commitment to be baptized. I'm finally going to make that commitment to settle my relationship with God through faith. Maybe it's a commitment to his people. Maybe you say, I think I've settled things with God. I just never have dealt with my love for his people. The devotion isn't there. I haven't made that commitment. And maybe this is the year that you'll say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join a life group. I'm going to get close to a group of people and do so with devotion. I'm going to start to serve or to give or to express my devotion to God's people because I realize that's, that's who, who God is and what he's called me to. As you do that and as you make those commitments in your heart, remember the grace of Christmas and the blessing of God. He rewards those who seek him, is the promise. He offers a blessing to those who would seek refuge in him. So let's look to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, would you give us eyes to see our lives in light of your word? Help us to stop blaming you for the messes that people have made. Guard us against bitterness and give us patience with bitter people. Give us eyes to see where you're at work. 
and help us to be grateful for the grace that we see. And lead us in commitment. May we take steps of commitment in our faith and steps of commitment to your people. Teach us to love with your kind of love. For we ask you in Jesus' name.